Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I am. I'm uh, enjoying being home after touring. And you? Yeah, I'm enjoying uh, puttering around the house and going to the studio. And uh, I'm actually spending a lot of time here in the house digitizing, colorizing images for the second edition of Fossil Freeway, cruising the Fossil oh, Freeway with totally Kirk Johnson, cool. our previous guest. Yeah, do you have to like redo every image or you want to redo every image? Many of the images were in color, but the ones that were in black and white that I ran out of time with last time, and just to have consistency through the entire book. But the other thing too, you know, so I'm adding digital color to the black and whites, but the other thing is I am recalibrating the geologic ages again. Because oh. if you go to stratigraphy.org, uh -huh. you know, those clever geologists and paleontologists, they recalibrate. So do they meet? And so some of these, like the Miocene is a little different. It ends in it. So I'm putting new ages in to keep it fresh so that like, you know, the paleo nerds will be happy. So some of these changes are going to affect epochs and ages after, right? Like the Cambrian is at an earlier date now, end date of the Ordovician probably stays the same, right? So they right. just cuts into it. Right. And, but then maybe they look at the Ordovician Silurian, so those boundaries, those are what shift. They nudge up or down. Right. And just to get more accurate, and I think maybe that has something to do with finding oil in the North Sea. Oh, are you doing a, a segue? I am. <laughs> to Did our you know, guest today. Do you, what is oil made of, Dave? It's basically plankton. So ancient plankton that right. is now oozy, compressed down into the ocean floor. We can run this by our guest today. You're talking, though, millions of years of this dead stuff raining down and creating these some absolutely pure layers that could be hundreds of feet thick. And other are impure. Right? That's why you get tar sand oil and you get purest oil. It comes out and needs very little refining. But how you find that prehistoric plankton, that oozy prehistoric plankton. You get a paleontologist. You get a paleontologist and you make them be on your ship, right? You know, as you, you, you if you're them, out there. You force them. I think you pay them I've to been be listening. On, your, on your platform. I've been listening to a bunch of the episodes now All uh, right. from, from our guest, and I kind of get the drift that he's not really enjoying his time on the rigs, and he'd yeah. rather be back fossicking around in the fossils. He is the second podcast I ever listened to in my life. When someone told me about podcasts, I had no idea what they were, and my partner turned me on to my favorite murder about true crime. And I started listening to that, and suddenly that opened up the entire world of all these different podcasts, and I found Paleocast, who was created by our guest today, Dave Marshall. And I started listening to these episode after episode when I ride my bike, when I go to the gym. And it was a whole window that opened up in paleontology. He's kind of like one of my podcast heroes. And, you know, when you said, let's do a podcast, I'm a boomer, man. I didn't know what you're talking about. So here I am. We're two years into this. Yeah. He's 10 years into it. Yeah. But you told me about it. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I don't have enough time. But then, of course, I started listening because I wanted to know something about, you know, Dave. And it's yesterday. great, isn't it? It's great. It's addictive. It's like, oh, wow. And then we've had some overlap. We had some people like, how did he talk to them? But I do want to ask him some behind the curtain sort of questions, sure. too, like, a, you sure. know, podcast. But he is a Eurypterid specialist, I believe. Yeah, 
Yeah, I know. So, and you love yeah. Eurypterids, so I freaking love Eurypterids. Which are, Almost by as much the way, ancient sea scorpions, giant things with pinchers and all kinds of strange appendages, which gives you nightmares at night. So let's call Dave Marshall and find out all about this. Well, I've yeah. got an old-fashioned British telecom telephone. Ooh. Yeah, I'm dialing yeah. it right now. Our guest today is Dave Marshall, paleontologist and host of the very successful podcast Paleocast. My very first paleontological podcast I've ever listened to. Dave has degrees in geology and paleobiology, and this year celebrates 10 years of podcasting and outreach as host and creator of Paleocast. Ray, meet Dave Marshall. What a great show. It's really nice to meet you, man. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So, um, you know, wondering about who you are and what you are, and you do this on your own podcast. What, what's your origin story? Where did you start out? And when did the paleo bug bite you in? Actually, let's just start with, are you a paleo nerd? Not really. What? <laughs> but Okay. Yes and, yes and no. So, so did, I, sorry, what's, where, where, did it, where did it all start? I, I don't have the same origin story as, I mean, pretty much anyone that I talk to on my podcast, but Everyone comes into it and says, ever since I was old enough to hold a rock, I've right. been a fan of paleontology. That's not true of me at all. When I saw Jurassic Park, it was just a big dumb film with giant stomping monsters in it. I had no, <laughs> yeah, no affinity there, yeah. to yeah. paleontology whatsoever. Um, so it, when I first got into it, I would have been about 22 or something. And considering that, you know, like I'm already well into my uh undergraduate degree in geology like i i was into geology before i was into paleontology paleontology mm. never interested me really? but as soon as i i did the work and it all started to make sense to me um just in the way that i view the world things that you know you just get a grasp of and you're just like that makes sense so if that's that then this is this and i was just good at it relative to everything else in my yeah. geology degree, so I just stuck with that. There was never any group or anything that I was particularly interested wow. in. I was never interested in dinosaurs. They did nothing for me. Brachiopods, yeah, bivalves, yeah. nothing. I've noticed there's kind of a, yeah, dinosaurs kind of vibe to your paleo cast. Yeah, that persists to today. I still have <laughs> no affinity I, I want you to know I'm sort of a paleozoic guy, too. So anyway, but continue yeah, with the story. Uh, so... Yeah, I just I just stuck with um what made the most sense. That went to arthropods, to trilobites, to stuff like that. Then that went to spiders. And eventually when I started doing an MSC, that became uh some of the Paleozoic chelicerates, so spider relatives, so sort of ancestrally spider line. You boys are birds of a feather, or you're trilobites lovers. <laughs> Trilobitomorphs, but you know, I got a real thing for chelicerates, which is a new word for me, you know, learning that, you know, because I'm an artist. I, I, I had the dinosaur bug early on and it stuck with me, but as I got older, I went deeper and deeper into paleo and began to have these new worlds open up to me and and uh, the world, the wonderful world of arthropods. Wait, 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 and... let's go back. Tell me what a chelicerate is. Uh, well, a chelicerate is something that has chelicerae, which are a modified first appendage, which ends up basically as a fang. So when you when you look at a spider or a scorpion, oh. uh, they have really tiny, tiny little limbs right at the front, and they are just two segmented limbs. 
and they've been modified into essentially a fang. And that's their first set of well, crabs legs, don't have those. What, what are the little nope. things crab? Uh, mandibulae. Oh, so they're a mandibulate. Okay. They're in so, the crustaceans, Dave. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I'm here to learn. <laughs> well, all right. So you just you were drawn to Eurypterids because they're just so damn cool. I mean, because they're all bitey and stingy and want to kill you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I first got into their puny, weeny, tiny, little, oddball cousins. So something called a Chasmataspidid. Now, and that's a new niche. That's the right. word we were trying to figure out how to pronounce. Oh, I said it wrong the first time I said it. I was like, Chasmataspidid. And uh, the, my supervisor was just like, uh, Chasmataspidids, yes, great. Glad you're interested in doing a project on those. So what are they? Uh, they're kind of like tiny rubbish Eurypterids that just have a different <laughs> pattern of segmentation. Nobody really knows exactly where they fall in the tree of Chelicerates, uh, so they could be closer related to horseshoe crabs, which are also Chelicerates. And it's, it's so strange, because Chelicerates are the second largest group of animals on the planet behind insects. But I mean, I guess as well, similar to insects, we, we don't have an amazing idea of where they came from and right. how even all of the different orders within that are related to each other. So in the Paleozoic, they're all in the sea. So you've got sea scorpions, you've got horseshoe crabs, they're still in the sea. You have these chasmataspidids, you have weird sea spiders that we still have today in yep. the uh, South Pole. And how are they all related to each other? And... How do we go from a load of aquatic chelicerates to a load of terrestrial chelicerates, the ones that we group together as arachnids? Those are the terrestrial ones. And it's just like, what, what happened? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sea scorpions to scorpions kind of makes a lot of sense because they look pretty much identical. But then there's just so much of a change that you have to go through to go from an aquatic to a terrestrial organism. It's not just like what's happening on the outside, but it's all on the inside and the physiological stuff that you have to go through, the anatomical stuff to go right. from gills to lungs. And we just don't know if scorpions well, were the first. Well, that's what I've, I've always understood is that the Eurypterids, the sea scorpions, they're the first ones ashore way back in the Paleozoic. There's a difference between going on shore and becoming terrestrial. So uh -huh. they would be some of the first onshore, but they're potentially just going for little forays onto the land. Yeah. So, that'd be, so they'd be amphibians then. Amphibious. Amphibious. Yeah. Oh. Yes. So... You see it with horseshoe crabs today. They all come onto land to spawn. It's a great idea because you're, you're saving your eggs from being in the water where things can eat them. Uh, unfortunately, the birds eat them nowadays, but then... Well, they started that trick before they were birds, so they just stuck yeah, exactly. with it, I guess. <laughs> you kind of stuck. But then is the same true for sea scorpions? Huh. Maybe. Probably. Yeah, they were maybe the first ones to stick around on shore, too, so... Right? No. Uh, no so back, right. way back <laughs> when we're going way back. All right. <laughs> super early terrestrialization of arthropods, and when you look at uh, molecular estimates mm. uh, for when some of the first uh, terrestrial things would have been, they would have been in the Cambrian. I really? think. Oh, wow! Off really? the top of my head, 
Yeah, so things like uh, myriapods. Millipedes and that kind millipedes. of thing. Centipedes. Millipedes could have been hanging about on land as early as the Cambrian. Wow. You heard it here first, off the top of my head, and I'm not <laughs> sure exactly on those dates. Uh, we make stuff it. up every now and then uh, here on Paleopters. Well, I have a question <laughs> about find out later. Back, Go ahead. back to uh, Eurypterids. If the first described species are in the early Ordovician, what is their proto uh, life form before? It, what is the transitional uh, animal? What did Eurypterids evolve from? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Don't know. <laughs> they just magically appeared. Yeah, this is why it's so nice working down in the um, in the Paleozoic, because you don't know how all these things are related to each other. You just kind of like find a, a fossil, describe it, and you're just like, so this is the thing, and it's here. There it is. It might be related to this. It might be related to that. We don't really know. And that's one of the joys of working so early in Earth's history right. in terms of uh, the actual physical fossil record, because there's just so much that doesn't make sense. Or that we just don't have enough information. Yeah, I mean, that's what you've been doing. You know, I've been fascinated with your the PaleoCast episode. Listen intensely to Simon Conway Morris. That uh, yeah, that interview, that was pretty heavy. But then he starts talking about Picaea. So we have Picaea, and then we have oh, the Unanozoans. who is Simon Conway Morris. He is the aficionado well, of... The Burgess Shale. Dr. Simon Conway Morris. Professor. Professor. Oh, all right. Ooh. Excuse me. All right, I I don't just get, I don't get these him. titles. Oh, I did. Okay. Oh, wow. I'm from Alaska, man. But anyways, <laughs> he talking about how vertebrates. Where did vertebrates come from? What's the link between vertebrates and echinoderms, pachya, and then these vetulicolians that we've been hearing about now? It's blowing my mind. But as you said, back in the Paleozoic, where do these things come from? Yeah, I really love the the earliest mysteries. The 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 kind of like the fundamental ones that are knowledge of life is built upon go ahead Dave. yeah i just want to go back a bit so as far as uh your job which you don't seem to be too fond of in the Wh which job i well, have many that i'm working not offshore working offshore as a paleontologist in the petroleum industry so yes. uh, first of all what do you do exactly i'm pretty much uh in the dark about this uh do you want the short or the long description the medium description the medium, the medium, medium. description Okay, so when oil companies are drilling for oil, uh, you have loads of different layers of rock all underneath the surface. You can't see them. You can maybe get the equivalent of something like an ultrasound that will show approximately where the different layers are. It can get incredibly complicated, and it's all hundreds of meters, thousands of feet away, and you don't necessarily know what you're going to drill into. Now, that isn't necessarily a problem most of the time, but then sometimes you can get rock layers that have incredibly high pressure fluids. If you drill into one of those when you're not expecting it, then that can be incredibly bad news, and you can lose the well, you can cause an incredible huge disaster, everyone could die on the rig. There's a lot of things that could go wrong. Um, okay. Fortunately... In the UK and Norway and stuff, we've got a really good idea of what all the rock layers are doing, but there's still loads that we can do to improve efficiency on the rigs. They cost like millions and upon millions per day to run. So anything you can do to shave time off of the operations is greatly appreciated by the oil companies. So when you're drilling through these rocks, you don't get 
any hand specimens up to the surface. I make an analogy that you're drilling a hole into your drywall. Uh, as you're going through, all you're getting is the equivalent of powder. And the rocks that we get offshore on these oil rigs come up looking like instant coffee. It's that same size. It's that same shape. They're crushed. So it's very, yeah, it's absolutely smashed, smashed to smithereens. So there's nothing you can do with it in terms of geology, really, because if you're going from one unit of, say, limestone into another unit of limestone, there's nothing you can really tell to say, like, we've gone from one limestone into another limestone. So what we have to do is look at the things that survive within those rocks, and those can be microfossils, they can be nanofossils. So things like foraminifera, and also loads of different palynomorphs and nanofossils, coccolithophores, and stuff like that, they can all survive. And so with those... You mean survive intact as far as identification? Yeah. yeah. And this is basically prehistoric plankton, right? Planktonic yep. fossils, just yep. to be clear, all right? Yep. Uh, zooplankton, phytoplankton, loads right. of pollens, and just random bits of all the stuff that doesn't normally get onto paleo podcasts, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but they evolve so quickly that you can have a really good resolution of uh, what age rocks you're looking at. Ah. And even more than that, you can get environmental information from them, and you can get changes in how this plankton uh, has evolved or how the assemblages of plankton have evolved within one rock unit so wow. within like the the scale of you know the scale of the time of deposition of this rock there can be changes and stuff within that that you can see either of the environment or of the fossils themselves so what we can do is if we go back through this discussion uh, analogy of drilling a hole in a wall uh, we can say, right, you're going to see nothing but plasterboard coming up. And then at some point, you're going to get shards of metal. And then at some point, you're going to hit a water pipe. And all of a sudden, <laughs> water's shooting out. And that's ah. the last thing you want. So what we do is we look at the stuff that's coming up and we can provide a countdown and say, okay, we're uh, in zone oh, Watch out, watch eight. out, watch out, watch out. Yeah, yeah all right. six, five, four. And so what they then do is they increase the pressure of the liquid that they drill with, because it's not just like an empty hole they're drilling. They, they force uh, high-pressure mud and oil with kind of the equivalent of the platelets in our blood, and they shove that down the well under really high pressure, and they attempt to counterbalance the predicted pressure of any uh, high-pressure fluids that are in the rock so that it's all in equilibrium when they reach that point. And so the equivalent is like pushing uh, water into the hole that you're drilling in the wall, so that when you hit the water main, then it, nothing comes out because you're pushing water at the same pressure. Wow, okay. That's and a so brilliant then you can, description. You can tap off the pressure in, in a controlled fashion, and that's how they so, take the hydrocarbons But wait, out. wait, hold on. But how does the uh, evidence of forams predict force and and predict the pressure that you're about to hit i mean you're talking about pressures from compression of strata mm -hmm. 
There has to be something that was once solid, which turns into a liquid, which is a marine sediment. And how does the layers above this pressure-bearing strata indicate that there is pressure below? Okay, so there's nothing we can do with the fossils in that instance. Um, when you get offshore and start working in the hydrocarbons industry, you know that it's a, a multi-trillion, quadrillion dollar industry. Like, this has got the brains of, you know, like people that are in NASA comparably, and you pull together so much information from different fields, it's not just all based on the fossils. So there's loads to do with geology, structural geology, seismic interpretations, uh, you've got stuff to do with uh, nuclear isotopes and stuff, there's everything you can think of they throw at this to make it more efficient and to extract as much as they can. Is this Cretaceous rock uh, there in the north? What, what are you drilling into up there? It can, uh, in the North Sea, uh, we are typically looking at reservoirs within the uh, Jurassic Cretaceous. Okay. A lot is in the Eocene around Norway. Uh, so you can you can go like the first like down into the Mesozoic, but then in some places it's even older. So, but your job as the paleontologist, you're going to know your your diatoms, your coccolithophores, you, all mm -hmm. all those fossils, the the genera and the species. You get down to that level, like wait, wait, yep. wait, wait. You've got this species, and you're about to. Is that how it works? Yes. So, wow. um, we go beyond genus and species. Right. Um, some oil companies will even dispense with a formal scientific nomenclature. So they won't use the, the standard Linnaean nomenclature, but they'll say we have what the equivalent of Tyrannosaurus species 131 or Tyrannosaurus species 69 or something. Where did that So they just give them numbers and you're rattling them <laughs> off, but you're the guy. Yeah, so yeah. There's, there's just so many uh, that you can, yeah, there's a lot that you need to know. Why aren't there cores of drill uh, rather than just a bunch of uh, powder? There, they can be. So they'll go coring as well, and you have um, core, core stores uh, all <laughs> over the world. So yeah. um, in giant museums of, like, which are basically just like libraries of rock, yeah, you I've get seen cores yeah. from all over the UK in the BGS, British Geological Survey. You've got um, a big thing of them in Norway. You'll probably have load in Houston. Uh, and yeah, they just have records of what the rock should be like. But then when you're dealing with uh, subsurface geology, like within the space of a few ten, hundred meters, you could have a fault that could just throw off something. And it's it's really hard to predict what kinds of rock you're going to get under the surface. Wow, that's fascinating. And I hate it. <laughs> uh, oh. Well, I, you know, that, that, that vibe kind of comes through on your podcast. You know, as I listen to... Little pre-show, uh, you know, before we talk to them. And where are you? I'm sitting in a hotel room with COVID or whatever. But you actually spend time to... on the rigs, right? Uh, out oh, of yeah. the North Sea? Yeah. So sometimes they'll bring those coffee grounds uh, back offshore and they'll send them uh, and to a lab and people will sit there and just analyze them. Uh, but if they uh, want the answer straight away, within 45 minutes to an hour, <laughs> typically... Then they'll ship you out. 
and that's where the real money is but that's also where the real pressure is you're using your knowledge of these tiny little plankton bits sometimes fragments will do and you are directing how a multi-million pound operation works based on what you think is the closest you know you're species making a billion dollar recommendation yeah the pressure's on then that's why you get the big bucks and because you were so greedy you started a paleo cast to make even more money well yeah so um when when i yeah, first where, started where did this big transition start here what's yours your story of paleo cast okay so paleo cast story involves oil as well so <laughs> i'm there working uh, for my oil company, my local oil company, which just happened to be some biostratigraphical consultancy that was just down the road from me. I was very lucky to find that and just emailed them and I was like, hey, you got any jobs? They were like, yeah, sure, come in. Um, wow. Just on the back of me having a paleo MSC. No, no actual biostrat experience. So I got very lucky with that. Uh, and so I'm working in this company, getting to know the ropes and... Uh, your brain is engaged, your eyes and your hands are completely engaged when you're doing this work down a microscope. You're turning these fossils over with a paintbrush. It's really delicate work. But your your rest of your senses, they're just doing whatever. Uh, and so we got to listen to a lot of music, got to listen to a lot of podcasts. And so I'd always just be listening to BBC science shows and stuff. And sometimes paleo would come up and I'd be so excited and it was never any good, you know, like, wow, <laughs> look, you, we found a new species of sea uh, dinosaur or flying dinosaur. And you're just like, oh, God, another damn dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then it got me thinking, wouldn't it be good if there was a paleontology podcast? And so I was really super excited to do the first one. It wasn't it wasn't the first one. I think Dinosaur George was the first one, but uh. I didn't know about that. Uh, so. Uh, I had the right connections to make it happen and I got one of my buddies and we sat down and we recorded the first episode and I can't remember what it was on at all, uh, something about evolution. And we sat there and we realized that we just could not talk about paleontology with any authority whatsoever. It was a complete shambles. And <laughs> I think that kind that of is... like us, Ray. <laughs> right. We faked it pretty well. Smoke yeah. the mirrors. But I think that's testament to just how big the field is and how on top of everything you would have to be to be able to host your own, you know, paleo show where you are the only expert. Like, it just can't be done. I mean, we're dealing with the entire history of life on the planet. Every single organism that's alive today has an evolutionary history. And Amen. no one can talk about every single species and every single group, even every single phylum on the planet in any sort of authority. And so that's how the format started, that we would interview people. And I went off on holiday to America, interviewed Dave Rudkin about the world's largest trilobite in Canada, interviewed uh, Bill Stein on uh, the fossil forests of Gilboa, New York. Oh, I heard that one, yes. And off I went. You actually traveled and did this in person, Dave? Yeah, it was it was on the back of a holiday. All right, I was going to say you have podcast money because we do this for the love of it, you know, but you have some kind of support that you've been able to build over the years. So you've got a oh. little bit of a budget now, right? Well, when, when I started, 
it was entirely off my own back. I mean, I was working for an oil company. I was essentially the the Batman of, you know, paleo communication. I just like threw some money at it because I could do because I had an oil like an oil yeah, job. Yeah. We're powered by uh ventriloquists and t shirts. So uh Well there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but then the oil industry's up and down all the time and I found myself essentially well being a consultant, you find yourself un unemployed incredibly quickly, especially in the oil industry and doing a job that's incredibly well paid, but inc like really short contracts and you never know when it's going to come. I've not worked in oil now for four months or something. Mm. Okay, I so don't know when my next job will be. It's wow. really, it's a really weird situation. Well, you started the podcast and it, it grew exponentially. It was it was hard work at, at the start. We didn't we didn't really take off massively. I remember an episode where you asked you wanted to get a better microphone, and you kept apologizing for the quality. And I I didn't have any problem with the sound quality at all. <laughs> and you finally made the announcement where thanks to your patrons or whatever. Or I don't know if you did a Patreon thing, but no, we now have then. a new microphone. And uh, I I did a silent applause for that. And that was oh, that was thank awesome. You. Well, I remember you donating, so uh, it's partly because of you. Well, I hope you uh, do check out a few of our episodes, but uh, no. Dave, other Dave, uh, you know, I but, have uh, been, I have been good, good. We've got some, we've got some rock stars in there, you know. But um, well, back to so your your ripped rids when you had this, uh, you started doing paleo cast. You uh, also were doing some travels. You traveled to New York. And you went to Lang's Fossils, didn't you? Oh yes, that was a fun trip. And you have one, Ray. Are you going to show well, it? What I was going to say is, is this familiar? It certainly is. Yeah. Okay, what is that? Wait, hold on. What is it? I'm going to do a it? screenshot. What is it? What is it? Eurypterus ramipes. Well, of course it is. The official state fossil of uh, New York. <laughs> of but, course, uh, yeah. What was what was that like? You're a Riftrid freak, and you finally get to go there. And did you like just have a heyday? Did you did you weep? Yeah. Did you see a so, Tergotus <laughs> that scared you? The Langs were were incredibly lovely people. I'll put that straight out there. They were so generous in hosting, and I interviewed them, and I absolutely messed up the interview uh, <laughs> and lost it. So what? Yeah. Whoops. So that would have been one of the first paleo casts that got lost, and it was so lovely. Uh, but yeah, it never made it to the light of day. And... Well, maybe we'll get it. We'll get. We'll get them well, back describe, on here. Describe the area. Yeah, well, what 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 is yeah, the what... preservation like, and what do you find there, and where is it? It's in Hermica County, New York. It's in the middle of America. Homogeneous America is all very American. It was very confusing for an Englishman. Uh, and I turn up there and we go through Al's personal museum because he's not just the Eurypterid collector, but he's also a meteorite collector, That's right. Right. Uh, which is incredible. He has the side of someone's house in his museum that got hit by a meteorite. Like, imagine just your house gets hit by a meteorite, then some beardy man comes up and says, uh, can I buy the side of your house, please, for my museum? It's <laughs> like, sure, help yourself. So I remember like him having some Venetian blinds, and they're all just like shattered, because a meteorite fell straight through the center of them. Wow. wow. Just in his house? Sure, why not? But then, then we go the up giant... to... Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, we, we go up to his quarry, 
and I've dug up a load of all over the UK looking for Eurypterids. I am very used to uh, mudstones and clays and all of this material, but there it's a really well cemented stone and it comes off in it feels like almost chert it's so hard it's so sharp you just get these flakes of it and yeah it was it was scary like even just walking on it just how sharp it was wow but anyway they were really easy to find eurypter it's so easy that you were kind of spoiled i mean i I was so happy that i i'd found my own eurypterid before going because you know, you, you spend so long studying a group of fossils and you really want to find it. Um, I guess it's like playing scratch cards, you know, like if you win a scratch card just randomly, like that'd be amazing. But if you <laughs> went to the scratch card factory and just went to the conveyor belt rolling off all the winning <laughs> scratch cards, you know, you, you get sick of it pretty quick. Wait, are these individuals or are these the bolts of Eurypterus? Uh, they can vary. So the good thing about arthropods in general is that they molt their exoskeletons. And so you get however many, like seven fossils for the price of one, potentially. You get seven times the chance that you'd be preserved because they're shedding off their exoskeletons. And so knowing about how different fossils grow, um, their ontogeny, is a lot easier to do with fossil arthropods. They just generate so many body duplicates yeah. of themselves in their lifetime. Yeah, and you, and you, if you measure like the sizes of them, you get little groupings, little clusters, and those are the uh, the sizes at which they shed their exoskeletons. So we call those instars. So you you can see those in the fossil record. Uh, how they break up uh, typically tells you whether or not they are. Uh, a malt or a mortality. So if they're all broken up, it's more likely that they're a malt. If they're completely uh, complete, then it's more likely that it's a mortality. Oh. So the one that so Ray you showed... You can't tell the difference between a malt and an actual dead organism? No. Because oh. you're, you're only seeing the external surface. It's Yeah, right. But but wouldn't any organic material within the, the gushy bits survive in some lagerstattens or in some preservation it it can do so if you see a gut trace that's likely that that is a mortality because you they don't shed all of their gut right. uh and then there's there's a lot of detail in the exoskeleton structure that will tell you whether it's a malt or a mortality but you have to have a pristine uh large data for that because right getting rid of all of your exoskeleton it's a really high metabolic cost to make a whole new one so they reabsorb some of the old one and then put it into their new one by so eating by eating their old shell or uh, no they do it physiologically they absorb it before oh. they shed it i know lobsters eat their, uh, their but then you might as well eat it anyway yeah. you know <laughs> free meal well, what what blows my mind is that uh, you can imagine some of these large sea scorpions shedding their entire skeleton just to picture that but i have two questions for you that first eurypterid fossil moment you mentioned that you'd found one before going to new york mm-hmm. state but that, i wanted you to describe that but then also i want you to describe to me maybe start with this what is a sea scorpion what's a eurypterid why are they cool? Can you paint a picture for us? Ooh, right. Okay. Um, Come on, man. S- 
yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking about where to come in to get the most people <laughs> on board because I can go in all guns blazing, but I think we need a bit of How context big it first. Is. <laughs> well, all right, okay, go. I'll, I'll, I won't try to direct you here. Okay, <laughs> so sea scorpions, Eurypterids, are a very successful group of Paleozoic predators that were top predators around the Ordovician, Silurian, possibly into the Devonian a bit. They have a huge range of cool features that give us a load of clues into how they lived, so their paleoecology. We can learn a lot about their paleoecology, and I think that is the coolest thing for me. So, fossil arthropods, we get their external surface preserved, so it's not just internal bones, uh, like in dinosaurs or what, whatever, so you only know the biomechanics. We have all of their outsides. We have their eyes preserved, because they're made out of cuticle as well, their crystals. We have their uh, sense of touch based on sensory hairs all over the body. We have their sense of taste based on sensory hairs on uh, their teeth, essentially. Um, we know how they felt water running over their body. We know what they could see. We know what they could taste, how they could taste, where they could taste, where they could feel. We know what they were made of. We know what kinds of materials they were reinforcing their exoskeletons with. We know how hard it could crush uh, something in its claws in some instances. There's just so much we know because we have all of their external surface preserved. So the paleoecology of them is just phenomenal. But then, if you look at them just as an organism in, in, them, in themselves and what their proportions were, what they looked like, you can get some that have giant claws that would, you know, like fit around your neck that are just so big. <laughs> some of these things, I think the biggest one was uh, two point three odd three meters? meters. Three meters, was it? Jacolopterinae. Jacolopterus, right? Yeah. Eight and foot or something? Eight feet for us, we Americans. Yeah, Americans. Where, now, where where would that been found? That was uh, Devonian of Germany, uh, but the Silurian of New York and Canada is pretty good for giant uh, Eurypterids. With some of those getting up to uh, seven feet. There's one called Acutoramus that we have all of its um, eyes preserved, and I think um, that one is specially adapted to hunting large prey close to it at night time that's what its <laughs> eyes tells oh my us God. Are, are its perfect conditions for seeing prey that's what it's best adapted for and their claws are the exact shape and essentially size of an Inuit fishing spear so huh. they have these two wow. kind of prongs either side and right in the centre of these prongs you have this giant impaling spike Oh. And so I love that. All right, I'll calm down. <laughs> this thing is filled with teeth, and they're all serrated like steak knives. And I think yeah. it would have just hit a giant fish with them, and it's kind of got like spikes that allow it to go one way in, but not the other way out. And they are just 
wonderful, wonderful predators. I think they are it, they are killing machines. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, really. Well, this is the thing about Europe Truth for me. I, I read this book by Peter Ward years ago on Methuselah's Trail, and in this book. He talks about Eurypterids being the top predators in the Silurian and into the Devonian, but uh, for a bit. Then the fish start developing armor in the Devonian, probably because these Eurypterids are running the show in the Silurian. But he paints this picture that that uh, somewhere deep in our vertebrate history, you know, we have before we were mammal-like creatures. We, deep within our genetic memory, is this fear of the Calisrits, the Eurypterids in particular, because they hunted us. They were everywhere in those oceans. They filled all the niches, and they were fast swimmers. They were big, they had these nasty claws, impaling bits, and that that's why we fear, just on such a basic level, spiders and scorpions. Do you, do you agree with that in a way? Is that why you're drawn to these horrible things? Uh, can we swear on your show? Yeah, yeah. yeah we, I'll just uh, beep it out. You just, uh, yeah. you sure as f well, can, man. That's absolute bollocks. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, think about by, it. By the way, bollocks is not a swear word in America. but uh, it, it, It's sort of very yeah. grey area yeah. in the UK. So but but we continue, can... go on. No, I want to hear this. This is great. Uh, so if that was true then any vertebrate would be scared of spiders and scorpions and that's just true absolutely that. not the case you're a scientist okay i accept that <laughs> but it inspired me as a as an artist i drew this image of fish being hunted you know our our ancestors being hunted by these terrible things i mean that's entirely the case but then by that same logic we would all be incredibly excited if we saw I don't know, a, a jellyfish that we're going to eat it. We'd all start getting really, really hungry when we saw jellyfish well, or something. Well, that, there, there's a, that's an image of a, a Eurypterid uh, hunting a jackalope. <laughs> uh, that's a little absurd, but... Uh, yeah, that's but one of your paintings, about, Ray. Well, oh, that's on the cover. Is that the cover of, uh, of one of your it's books? Not, it's a detail from the cover of the Cruise of the Fossil Freeway. What's right. the other one that you got there, Dave? We'll yeah, hold on a second. Let me see if I can uh, share I don't share think that um, little rabbit thing is getting away. No. Rest there. in peace. Oh, this is a beautiful picture. Is that is that all right? Can you describe yeah. that to our listening audience and what's going on here? So there's our little fish being chased. Oh, I didn't even see the fish in there. I'm just yeah. looking at all the Eurypterids. Uh, so yeah, we've got a beautiful Carcinosoma. Uh, and that is the one with the triangle head. And that's got a, a really pointy curved tail, which made people think that that was closer to scorpions because of the um, uh, the similarity to scorpion tails. Uh, we got a pterygoted in the top left. Oh, there's a beautiful stylonurid yeah, in the very top left. Archaeopteris stubbled field eye in the bottom left, Humilaria bottom center, <laughs> Terragotus bottom right. You've done a good job in copying these. Well, thank you, David. This is. Now, uh, but, but these tails, they didn't have obviously stingers on them. They were for locomotion. Yeah, for the most part. And, and when you look at horseshoe crabs today, they don't have a sting in their tail. They just use their tail to right themselves. And it probably made sense that this was the case as well for these. Uh, some of them have been shown to have used their tails as a rudder and helped them maneuver around in the water. So, would wow. they would they have been fast? I mean, really, could they 
really swim no, after? Probably not. Nah? Yeah, I, no. I can't imagine that. I, I expect they were most likely ambush predators, and then some of them were sweet feeders, and they just walked around the floor and just shoveled whatever they could into their mouths. Like Tergotis, in some of the many of the Eurypterids, I guess they had like eyes on top, you know, of their mm -hmm. head too. Yep. So they had eyes in front and eyes on top of their head, and that really indicates, oh, there's something up there. So those would be used because they're only a, a single lens. They're mostly just for detecting where dark. the where the sea is. Uh, sorry, where the sea surface is. Uh, so oh. you, yeah, you you got light from above, obviously. And so that's the right way up if you've been turned over. And then maybe if something big comes and eclipses that from over the top of your head, then you can get that information quicker. But things like horseshoe crabs don't just have those two eyes, those two dots on top of the head. They have loads of them all over the body as well. So I think there's something like 13 different ones or something really? that are, are oh. light sensitive. And when you look into like light sensitive like sort of proto eyes if you would if you'd forgive me using that term they're all over the animal kingdom things like bivalves have rows of eyes along the the edge of the shell in some circumstances it's crazy. That's mind blowing you know but actually what's crazy too is we vertebrates you know early on had the pineal eye you mm. know, so like tiktaalik has got a third eye if there's the same thing light sensor the uh, tuatara which remains with us today has got that pineal eye that's the, that's the lizard in new zealand right it's its own it's a lizard-like animal it's right not a lizard, right but it's its but, own um uh, it's its own big group um right we'd need to have a herpetologist uh dial that in for us i'm just the artist here but but anyways <laughs> so thank you we we I, we kind of got off of the eurypterid uh, but it's great there. though eurypterids so, are scary they're awesome so uh I, i'm sitting here loving this well Recently, the uh, you had a whole episode with uh, James Lamsdell describing yeah. Pentacopterus. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's so cool about that one? Wait, well, let's start off with James Lamsdell first. So All he right. is also host of Paleo After Dark podcast. Oh. So we're getting super meta, like meeting of Paleo podcasts talking about a third Paleo <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so he'd be one to have on in the future. And... I just took off my Pentacopterus t-shirt. I had it on before. Really? Yeah. But wait, so oh, wait, it. he said uh, that they named it after a Greek warship? Yeah, the Pentaconta, I believe. And this is this is where James comes in, because he knows about ancient history. Uh, and I don't. Uh, but uh, it was the at the time, it was the oldest known Eurypterid. I think that it's going to get uh, beaten to that now with something that I saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is super cool. Uh, but that is the first Eurypterid at the time, and it was already like super huge, super aggressive. It was built for destroying things in the sea. It had huge spikes all over its um, arms. It was just made for ambushing and shredding bits off of other animals. Is it Ordovician? Yeah, it's Ordovician. But maybe there's hints that maybe something goes back into the Cambrian, right? Not Cambrian. No, it'd, it'd be earlier Ordovician. So what's going on in the Cambrian? I don't know. We have things that could be stem chelicerates, like Sanctacaris. But then where where do Eurypterids come off from that and all of their friends, Eurypterids and friends, where do they come into it? Just don't know. 
Was there a extinction event that separates the Cambrian and the Ordovician? What what not separates really. those two? That's a good question. Yeah, I, I, it's not a it's not a mass extinction. There might be an extinction in there somewhere, but it's really the Ordovician that is the first big mass extinction. End Ordovician Silurian boundary. Well, just talking about those long stretches of time, uh, we lose our Eurypterids at the uh, Permian Triassic, the Great Extinction, right? They're gone then. Yeah. And so, have they? Are they much diminished in their uh, in their reign? Their supremacy over the sea was really in the Silurian, and the fish got armored and figured them out, and yeah, they tapered off. Is that so? Essentially, yeah. So into the the Devonian, you start getting. Um, well, you start getting placoderms in the Silurian. They really take off into the late Silurian and Devonian. And in the Devonian, you get uh, one of the first um, extinctions events in the Devonian. I think it's the Kelwasser event. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, anyway. Well, there's a series of events in the, at the end of the Devonian. Yeah, that someone, kill will, things off. someone yeah. will tell me I'm wrong on that. But uh, yeah, Eurypterids don't do well into the Devonian, and by the Carboniferous, they're essentially a dead clade walking, but they persist uh, up into the Permian. I think there's uh, three or four genera and species that go into the Carboniferous. By the end of it, you've really only got one. And um, and their hunting are his... days are over. They're just sort of yeah. benign. They've, they've been evicted feeders. from the seas. They're, yeah. they're only freshwater now. And in the Carboniferous, they were up and down the, the rivers, you had one called Hibatopterus, which was about in Scotland, and that was possibly the largest arthropod ever. So you've got the you've got the largest one, which was probably Jacolopterus, which is the big pterygoted one from Germany and the Devonian. In, the that's in length. In that's, length. That's, but this one is a big fat guy. But this is a big fatty. Uh, is a, a massive tank. It's like the the Roomba of the Carboniferous. Just, <laughs> Going up and down the rivers, just sweeping whatever it can into its mouth. Nothing bothers it. It doesn't bother anything else. But maybe to do with oxygen levels, it just falls off by itself. You mean before yeah. the Permian extinction event? Uh, before the Permian, that one was gone, I think. And then I think it's... Oh, who survives till the end? Is it Cytoctonus? I can't remember. It's all right. There'll be a Eurypterid quiz here. It's all right. Yeah. One of them <laughs> we've just found fossils of in uh, Australia. I say we, I had nothing to do with it. Uh, <laughs> but someone found the last Eurypterids in Australia, which is essentially nestled up to the um, Permo-Triassic boundary, which we would always assumed would have been the case anyway, but we never had evidence that went further than middle Permian to say that they made it to the end. But it does seem like they crossed that, well, they got to that respectable finish line when right. most of life died anyway. So, Well, so what was it like finding that first Eurypterid fossil on your own? Well, that was my initial question there too. Yeah, so the, the first one I found was in Germany with the guy who found the giant... Uh, three yod meter jacolopterus and we went out fossil hunting looking for these weirdo eurypterid related cousins the chasmataspidids and so i was <laughs> looking for those i wasn't even looking for eurypterid and i found one and it was a bit rubbish but i was very happy and you just get this moment where you crack a rock open 
and you're just looking at a, in this instance it was just the mush of plants and then in the center of it it was this almost fish-like shape and oh it was just gorgeous i just recognized the segments and there was lots of super camp squealing or something and Good. Yeah. i was very happy you but had the a first... pint or two that night yeah the first really rare thing though i found um would have been in ludlow in the uk and i found a claw off a carcinosomid eurypterid it was an ambush one and it was about the same size as my hand like with all my fingers spread out as if you're you're counting to four just stick your hand up like that and that's what it looked like and it used these spikes at the end of its arm to catch its prey and that's gorgeous that's in uh, my local museum now uh, good. so so happy to find that and you uh co-authored a paper on kes i did so <laughs> I went say, to. How do you say it? Casmatis <laughs> I'm just going to go with whatever you say. It'll be funny. No. Casmataspidids. <laughs> there you go. It's it's a thing we do on our show when we get so, it right. I go ahead. um I did my MSc and it didn't do very well. My project and Richard Forty, the big trailer bike guy, was like, "That's a load of rubbish." And I went, "Right, I'm not having this." But all of my fossils were found in Russia. So I was just like, right, booked a trip to Russia, went to Russia, <laughs> just called in at the museum there and was just like, hello, I'm a man from England and I want to look at your rubbish eurypterids, please, or your chasmataspidids. I went there and started digging through looking for this one specimen. I only went to This is in a one. collection room, not out in the field, right? This is in the Paleontological Institute in Moscow. Wow. And they have so many fossils there, it's unbelievable. I'd never seen a museum like it. Um, so this wasn't the, the public display, but the collections. And their collections spilled out of the collections and they went down the corridors and they went round the corridors into someone's office and back out of the office and into the toilets and back out of the toilets and down the corridor. And I was just like, I can't believe there's so many fossils. And in a dusty basement, they pulled me out. And this came uh, out of Drillcore. So as we were talking before about all of these records of what the rock looks like, these people in Russia in the 50s were looking for oil, essentially, in the middle of Siberia. And they took down some drill core. And in about a two or three inch circle of drill core, they managed to nail about three or four holotypes of a new species of chasmatasmid. Wow. And then... Someone looked at them, were like, well, I guess we've got some fossils here, sent them to the Paleontological Institute, and there they sat for 50 years with nobody interested in them until I came along and was just like, that's new, that's new, that's new. And did you write those up? I wrote those up, and it took me four or five years uh, because I was doing oil work at the same time, and it and was just published. kind of a hobby I see then. The paper. I have the paper. And then that. it got published. Yeah. And I. Congratulations. Did such a bad job of it that they sent it me back <laughs> and they said, Dave, you can't write as if it's like a, a magazine article. You have to write like a scientist. <laughs> oh, and so you mean, I rewrote yeah, I, it again. Uh, all technical. Yeah, with the technical stuff. You mentioned MSc for we Americans. What? That's your master's degree? That's master's degree, yeah. And uh, it was on, you were resorting, you're sorting out Eurypterus, the, the genus Eurypterus? 
I was looking at the sensory... Oh, wait, no. Masters. I was looking at the phylogeny of the chasmataspidids. I wanted to know how the chasmataspidids were all related to each other, and then in turn, if that can tell us about how they are related to eurypterids and horseshoe crabs, which is essentially what my paper was about. And then yeah. later on, I did a PhD, and that was looking at the sensory ecology of eurypterids. Oh, okay. The sensory ecology. Yep. Ah, all the hairy stuff. All the, the hairy stuff, eyes, the eyes, everything. Yep. I found a, uh, a YouTube video of you skateboarding in a housing what? project somewhere. In, in a housing project? Uh, yeah. Is that you? Probably. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but then, which led me that you are an ardent gamer. Yes. You would rather be gaming than anything else. I would. Uh, and then that led me to you created and started uh, and in the process of creating the Virtual Natural History Museum. Tell us about that and where where is it at right now? Right. Uh, so just as a quick run through of me, I'm not a paleo nerd. First of all, I was a computer <laughs> right. game nerd. Then I was a skateboard nerd. Then I was a paleo nerd. And then I kind of like combined everything that I love together and created my own museum, which is just bonkers. It's a computer game museum and it just works straight in your web browser. So you don't need to do anything. And uh, what it is, is if you are a paleontologist, you know that Instead of going to the Paleontological Institute in Moscow and going through all their collections in the bathroom and whatnot, you can just look on an online catalogue and get pictures of the fossils. And so the world has this like digitized collections as a whole that are just not publicly accessible to the average person. And I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could use all of the all of this collective information and present it in a way that it's actually useful so it's it's completely freely accessible for anyone to use so like you could go to the smithsonian and they've got completely open access pictures of fossils that you can just have there you go that's the that's your picture of pacaya that's your picture of um olenoides serratus whatever you want the smithsonian has it and it's free but People don't know about it. People that you, you don't know about the online research catalogs of whatever museum. So if I was to just come up with a random one, say like the Natural History Museum in Paris, I don't know what they have. I don't know if it's available. I don't know if I could just log in and get access to, would they have an Archaeopteryx? I don't know. Right. But whatever. I don't know what they have. But if I was to go on there and start looking, you are confronted with basically a database inquiry they say okay what specimen french. number do you want <laughs> yeah and it's in french and it's yes it's maddening it's really not user so you want to collect typically. it all under one digital roof yeah so it's i thought brilliant. like wouldn't it be amazing if you just had a public interface for all of this where you you show people in the way that they would want to see all of this information not as an, an Excel spreadsheet, but as an actual museum that you can run around and that you can look at. And so it all came about really fortuitously because the Paleocast site had been hacked and I was looking for web developers 
to come up with a new website for us. And my local web developers, uh, brilliant guys, they had a website concept that was essentially just a computer game. You just run a character around, and when you reach a coordinate, it's all on a grid, a pop-up window comes up and it just says, blah, 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 buy your shoes from whoever. Uh, and so I just thought, well, if we made a giant, you know, like computer graphics museum and ran around, then once you reach, you know, a display with a dinosaur or where an information stand is, if you just walk up to that, it just pops open really? and there you've got the information and the pictures from these museums. So you could walk up to Archaeopteryx. And now, instead of having to go to Berlin, having to go to London to see these specimens, it's all just there for you. You can pull up the images of each specimen and see the information and have a description written by uh, an expert in the field about right. what it is. And we'll get that link. Uh, is it under construction now or where? what's the status of it? You can. I'll, I'll give it to you. I can't and give me? it to everyone else. It's not, I'll give it to you as well. Thank I'll you. give it to you both. <laughs> and if anyone really wants it, they can come and hunt me down. Dave, I've done a lot of museum exhibits and mm. uh, and uh, have produced a lot of artwork over the years. So just saying. Yeah? Well, let's, yeah. I'll, I'll send you the link and you can have a look and well, see Ray, if it's... Well, you Ray, have, you have how many exhibits actually touring right now as we speak? Uh, well, I've got the one big one about to end, uh, end, but it's with the director of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, and I, so I know that guy, so Kirk. But anyways, we're wait, going wait, down doing, this week. You're doing one at Smithsonian? No, no, the we Kirk and I did this show. Oh right, you know it's the but end you just of the had, You just fossil. had there's something end at the Burke Museum, and you had it in the Kansas, and you. Yeah, I'm just yeah. saying I do these big exhibits that travel around from place and to place. I saw yours and, at the Denver Museum of Natural History. That was a and, big uh, one, too. Oh, the Amazon. That was the Amazon. Yeah, I did an Amazon exhibit. So anyways, Mr. Marshall, I'd like to call you volunteering. Well, if there's <laughs> a way, you know, you could use some of the stuff. I'm happy to get it out there, you know? So, yeah, cool. But Let's talk later. Let's talk. <laughs> so, yeah, check out my website and check out the Paleo Nerds and all that. And I'm going to keep listening to Paleo Casts and... All that good stuff, but, well, you're, but you know, the game. you're late to the game. I am late to the game, man. I'm a boomer. The um, great thing is that we can embed any sort of material in it. It's not just photos. It's 3D scans. We've got uh, stereographic images that the BGS produced. We've got videos. We've got audio. Any podcast that we put out is now being able to be incorporated into the museum. And so things like Sketchfab, where you can manipulate these 3D things, zoom in and out of them, that is where the future is. And then annotated Sketchfab, where you've got labels on the 3D models and narration as you're turning them around. That's where it's at. All right, I, this uh, sounds big. But hey, let me ask you this question, sort of a wrap-up kind of question. Uh, Dave Marshall, if you could time travel, go back into the past, then yeah, you don't have to just necessarily go only to the past. If you could... Go back in time. What paleo period or exciting epoch would you go back to, and what would you want to see? Um, wasn't ready for this. Uh, <laughs> good, good. So just think on the spot. It's not rehearsed. There, 
there's some interesting ecologies that I would like to see to see if my hypotheses of how they worked are true or not. So one of them would be uh, these kinds of blind trilobites called oh. harpetids and trinucleids. And they have what is essentially a sieve or a colander around the front of the face in a in a big like if you if you imagine someone just went a bit crazy with a hole punch around the the face of a trilobite, it's just absolutely filled with holes. Really? And there's been loads of um yeah, it's crazy. Are they filter if, feeders or is this predation by a parasite? <laughs> is it's not predation, they're far too regular and neat. Uh it has been hypothesized that they're filter feeders. That's one of the hypotheses. That was um, Richard Forty's one. Uh, so some of the other hypotheses are that it is just as a structural thing. It's kind of like a load of girders. Maybe they're saving on uh, the metabolic cost of making a exoskeleton that's big whilst maintaining its uh, strength in this kind of shape. Another thing that's been hypothesized is that they were sensory structures. And what you're not looking at is uh, they don't need a compound eye because they have a compound ear around the head. And it's actually a listening wow. device. Wow. Kind of like um, how you can get uh, compound satellites. So for looking into space, instead of having one big satellite dish, you can essentially do the task with a load of little ones. And then with right. some crazy mathematics, make them all what essentially What period a big are one. these from? Yeah, what, what, what time? So this would be the Ordovician of Wales. Oh, and right. Excellent. Yeah, Wales as in at... the little country next to the England. Yeah, yeah. So it, it'd take me about uh, an hour and a half to drive to the next Wait, country. Wait, where are you? Are you in Bristol? I'm in Manchester. Oh, you're in Manchester. All right. Yeah, from Manchester, just down the road from Manchester United. Yeah, man you. Yeah. Go man you. Oh yes. Yeah, of course. Okay. And so yeah, I'd love to see what it was that these little trinucleids were doing. And I think that whatever it is that they're doing, it'll be amazing. Uh and the other hypothesis is that they were using it as an electrosensory organ looking right. into the substrate right. for worms and stuff. Because if they're moving their muscles, they're creating a, a tiny electric field. Maybe it's sensing it like a metal wow. detector. So it could be a radar, a, a radar oh. array. It could be a radar array looking up as a listening right. device. It could be a, a electrosensory array looking downwards. <laughs> just don't know. That is so, so you cool. have a warm spot in your heart for trilobites as well as eurypterids. Then, for, eh? for any arthropods that we can work out how they lived, where we can paint a rich picture of what it was that they were doing, not just here we have a different looking species, but this is what it was doing. You gentlemen are brothers from another mother. <laughs> yeah. So, David? Okay, well, I'm not going to ask such a big question. Usually I try to get something all uh, heavy, all thing. deep and heavy. But um, uh, my question to you, Dave, is uh, first of all, I'm a big fan. This is an honor to have you on our show. So uh, oh, thank, thank you. you for taking the time to do this. Uh, Really, you were the first real science podcast that I just went nuts <laughs> over. So thank you. You know, for... it's just me in my bedroom. 
Like, yeah, this, well, this is PaleoCast here. Look at well, this. I, well, look, this is my, this is our, he's, he's in a spare bedroom and I've got a Ray Troll <laughs> painting behind me. So, so look, both Ray and I love creating our podcast because we truly are paleo nerds. We loving all things, deep time, fossils, and the understanding of how life evolved on this planet. So why do you do it? Honestly, because it's easier than having a real job. <laughs> That's right. When you love your work, you don't work a day in your life. I think that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> we'll help you out here. <laughs> no, that's great. No, that's great. No, well, really, it's it's uh, when Dave when Strassman approached me about doing the podcast. I love doing it when I sit down, but man, it's a it's a lot of time, and you guys mm -hmm. must put in all kinds of time editing and finding the guests and doing the website i mean why do you do paleocast because no one else did and because i had the the tech mindset to do it like someone needed to be talking about fossils and there was no one there doing it and the people that were doing it weren't doing it in the right way which is why i do all of my outreach because i think that there is a right way to do outreach that elevates the, the research of the scientists rather than just attempts to pull in as many listeners as possible it's kind of like a it's my love letter to the science rather than anything else and yeah i think that that is my hobby just being in love with paleontology and you you love doing the interviews right i mean you just you're expanding your knowledge as you do this show and we both we all and, do we all do and I, i'm just curious too before we wrap it all up is there some some really surprising things that you've learned when you've been doing paleo casting like new things like whoa what yeah of course like as as i've said before like we're dealing with the entire history of life on the planet the if you have any interest in the natural world at all there will be something out there no matter who you are you could be mike benton and just like absolutely on top of every single vertebrate you wrote the vertebrate fossil record yet one day maybe next week something will come across uh, come along some new paper and it will just blow your mind and it will turn everything that you thought you knew on your on its head it will introduce to you a new animal with a new ecology that you've never even conceived of before or give you a new way of looking at everything like it's like reassembling a jigsaw and finding new pictures that it can all present to you and oh it's it's just such a wonderful voyage of discovery and just dipping your toes as as an invertebrate person in the paleozoic and dipping your toes into what some sloths are doing in a recent example in right. more recent times and there's marine adapted sloths and i was just like right. what you got these <laughs> sloths swimming around like <laughs> i had never conceived that as possible and right. it's just anywhere that i look there is something that completely astounds me with paleontology and it's addictive and you just once you get on board that train of discovery you just can't stop it's just wonderful that was great. What a what a great interview. I've had so much fun. And uh, uh, I'm really glad that you said yes and thank you. Thank you for your time today. <laughs> oh, thank oh, you for having me. And real quick, what's the temperature there? The hottest day in the record of the UK record keeping. And I know uh, Greenwich 
observatory has been keeping records for a very long time. Yeah, it was it was supposed to hit 40 degrees today. We had a red temperature warning and we are currently at 33 degrees, which is probably the hottest I can is 66 plus 30 is 96 degrees Fahrenheit. Pushing 100. Your American yeah. viewers are just and listeners are just losing their minds now at temperatures approaching 100 degrees. I know, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm discovering sweat glands that I never knew existed. <laughs> it's a, it's another voyage of discovery here. There you go. There you go. Well, Eng England is now clothing optional. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so. Yeah, Dave, thank you so much for your time today and being uh, Paleo Cast on Paleo Nerds. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's been great talking to you today, Dave. Thanks so much for joining us, and I love Paleo Cast too, man. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. He's my hero. He's my paleo cast, paleo nerd, paleo podcast hero. You were kind of cute because you were getting all fanboy nervous and excited and uh, you gushed a bit here and there. And he was like, you know, really cool. But uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm on board, man. I'm on board. Good, good. You got me. Uh, and I think it's important that we, you know, don't see him as an adversary, but see him as a collaborator. Well, he's kind of the guy that started it, you know, and, uh, right. He started it for us. Yeah. And I mean, via you, I, I mean, I really am a boomer, Dave, but I'm legitimately. Boomer. You mean you didn't know what a podcast was? Well, I knew of them, but I just wasn't. Right. It wasn't in my wheelhouse. Both of you guys loved trilobites and eurypterids. That's pretty cool. Well, we nerded out on the eurypterid thing there. And, uh, I actually, I really, you know, I learned about oil and how they find oil and yeah. why there's a paleontologist yeah. who's flown out to these oil rigs, you know? I know. I thought it was just that they go, oh, here's a sediment you should probably drill in. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that it has to do with keeping a, a, a well from going ballistic and, and the pressure. Yeah. It's the guys basically who are looking at tiny little fossils as they get right. closer, right? They're, well, right. this is fossil number, 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 and you're about to, no, no, that's the one that's going to, it. you might, you know, so hold yeah. off and then they get the thing in. And so I understand it. And we are driving around with plankton powered cars, man. Not me. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mine's fully electric. Yeah. All right, Ray. That was a great interview. And I, and by the way, please listen to PaleoCast, yeah. which is spelled P-A-L-A-E-O-C-A-S-T. That's the oh. English I wonder Spelling. why you were sending me all these incorrectly spelled paleo things. It's not incorrectly spelled. We spell it wrong. They spell it right. Um, I do agree that PaleoCast is an awesome, awesome podcast. And uh, we hope you enjoy listening to Paleo Nerds as well. I do not see them as rivals of any sort. If anything, we're all doing what we can to get the history of the planet and the you know get the coolness of science and uh the validity of you know data from the strata sir yeah data from the strata yes signing off from ojai california where this morning as i walked my dog there were raindrops those big fat raindrops really? which lasted for about 10 seconds well, it has been raining steadily here for about two weeks, and they're promising sunshine tomorrow. The magic phone says right? the, the little yellow thing, and then back to rain. So, well, I'm going to give you uh, a little audio clip of the sun coming out right now. Oh, that was nice, Dave. Thanks for that. <laughs> so, signing off in beautiful rainy Ketchikan, Alaska, Mr. Raymond Troll here. 
a true paleo nerd. And uh, it's been fun, Dave. See you next time, dude. I'm a paleo nerd, too. See ya. See ya. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs>